Still good, boys? Okay. Last week, we were introduced to the book of James, as well as its author and those that originally received it. James, the oldest half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, although an unbeliever during the earthly life and ministry of Christ, encountered the resurrected Lord at some point after the crucifixion and became one of the pillars of the Christian church in Jerusalem, along with Peter and John. By all accounts, he was a person of great faithfulness, piety, and influence. As a result, he was murdered by the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem in 62 AD. He was thrown from a high place of the temple and having survived the fall, was beaten to death there on the street. James addressed this letter to the Christian Jews that had been dispersed all over the known world. These Jewish Christians were having a hard time of it, having been expulsed from synagogue life. This meant their religious lives, their economic lives, and family lives were being dismantled right in front of their eyes. This letter from James is an encouragement to these poor folks to live wisely according to the wisdom of Christ to love God and to love their neighbors. It is an immensely practical book containing very little doctrine but an abundance of instruction for the believer to live godly in the real world we find ourselves in day by day. Its instruction is eternal and applies to you and I today as much as it ever applied to the original recipients. To tie up the first message, we read how James, through the Holy Spirit, ties trials to patience as he pleads with us to count it all joy when we are suffering. Because our suffering will produce patience, and patience will have its perfect and complete work in those that receive trials with endurance. To be honest with you, um, as I was beginning the book of James, I sort of have always pictured it in my mind as a bit of a hodgepodge, I say that as reverently as I can, of instructions that don't seem to link to one another. Having now um, studied uh, James um, a little more thoroughly, I'm actually, this book is maybe second only to the book of Hebrews in in the perfection with which it is constructed. It is, it is really uh, an incredible piece of literature and uh, beyond that, um, inspired scripture. And so um, I hope that you guys um, see this more and more as we go through the book. Now, today we are going to only be going, uh, looking at uh, verses five through eight of James chapter 1, but once again, I would like to read the entire first chapter because the first chapter sets up the rest of the book. And so let's read together James chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. 
If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but let the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does." If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this beautiful scripture, this powerful scripture that you have preserved for us through the ages that we can look into today. I pray that the spirit that has inspired these words would also open our hearts and minds to the truth and understanding in, in this text. And so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you lack wisdom? I think... If any of us were asked if we lacked wisdom, certainly me, we would immediately emphatically say, yes, I don't have all the wisdom I would like to have, especially in the midst of a difficult situation. I think when James writes, if any of you lacks wisdom, 
He understands this very clearly. And he could easily have said, when any of you lacks wisdom. When life is sailing smoothly along, as it sometimes does, although maybe less frequently than we would like, we don't sense this lack of wisdom. There isn't any decision at that particular moment that we are pressed to make in order to move forward in life appropriately. But James has just left a discussion about trials in the life of the believer in verses 2 through 4. It is when we are having a difficult time of it that we truly sense our need for God's wisdom. We all know, sort of instinctively, what this wisdom is that we need. Maybe in its simplest form, wisdom is the ability to make the correct decision when a decision must be made. In a lot of cases, it helps, us, it helps to have as many facts as we can have and some understanding of how those facts work together. But even at that, without wisdom, we can make the entirely wrong decision. So, John, not the Apostle John, our own John that we have in our congregation, one of them, is driving down the road in his truck. He's pulling a low-bed trailer loaded with goods for a warehouse in Edmonton. He has spent years driving. He knows what gear to be in up and down the hills, how to change gears smoothly at exactly the right RPMs, when to change lanes, and all the other rules of the road so that he can keep himself and others safe. These are all facts that he has accumulated over years of doing his job. And he can put all these pieces together to do his job well. But wisdom is what gets the truck to the warehouse. It is like the map that shows you the route to follow in order to bring that low bed trailer to its final destination to get unloaded. And you don't need to know every road in Edmonton to get to your destination. You simply need to know the correct route and you will arrive at the correct destination. In life, our roadmap of wisdom is, of course, the scripture. But every now and then, poor John discovers that the route he had planned to take is blocked off by road construction or a car accident. Now what? Now he probably looks over at his wife and says, well, you figure it out, now just tell me where to go. But anyway, that's another story. But now what? His route was planned. This was completely unexpected. In our lives, when we are confronted with these unplanned, unexpected situations, we call them trials, we need the wisdom of God. The scriptures, of course, are sufficient guidance in the life of the believer, and we rely on them day by day to sustain us and direct us. But I want to mention a couple of things and I want to mention them as reverently as I can. One, we need God's Spirit to understand the Scriptures and guide us into all truth because He is their author and His wisdom is necessary to gain a proper understanding of the Bible. Often, when we pray for wisdom, God gives us His wisdom through some scripture to which he graciously leads us and opens our eyes. Two, 
Our need of God's wisdom is often in the midst of a circumstance unique to our own lives. So, for example, what am I trying to say here? The Bible gives us instruction on what kinds of qualities to look for in a spouse. But it does not give us the name and phone number of the person God commends us to marry. The Bible gives us guidelines on how to wisely invest and spend our money. But it doesn't give us the address of the house we are to buy or rent. The Bible tells us that it is good and healthy for us to work and earn a living for ourselves and our families. But when we lose our jobs and find ourselves in a time of stress and uncertainty, uncertainty, we pray for God's wisdom in searching for another job. And these are the things we often are in prayer about, aren't they? We encounter these decisions often in the midst of trials, and we need God's wisdom to proceed with his blessing and peace. And in these trials, we need wisdom a lot more than we need knowledge. Knowledge is raw information, but wisdom knows how to use it. Someone once said that knowledge is the ability to take things apart, but wisdom is the ability to put things together. How often do we lie awake all night picking things apart with our limited knowledge when what we truly need is for God to put them together with his wisdom? That would be a perfect time to pray and ask for God's wisdom. It says of wisdom that we are to simply ask God. Knowledge takes time and a whole lot of effort. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, the Bible repeatedly commends the pursuit of knowledge and understanding, particularly in the book of Proverbs. Wisdom, on the other hand, can be a gift from God if we will simply ask. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. We ask for wisdom. We don't purchase wisdom and we don't demand wisdom. We cannot have God's complete knowledge and we cannot have God's complete understanding in any given trial. But God's wisdom he will generously give if we will simply ask in faith. For some reason, because we're humans... We try to earn wisdom. We often try to earn wisdom. Spurgeon once said, We are all so ready to go to books, to go to men, to go to ceremonies, to anything except God. Consequently, the text does not say, Let him ask books or let him ask priests, but let him ask of God. To, to be honest, there is a type of wisdom that you can earn. We earn it in the school of hard knocks, and it comes with either pain or gray hair or both. But that is not the believer's only access to wisdom. We have access to God's wisdom through humble and faithful prayer. And God gives us, gives us his wisdom. It says, generously or liberally. God doesn't just give us barely enough wisdom to squeak by. 
He gives us an abundant supply. The Bible says that he gives his wisdom liberally and without reproach. Praise God that his giving is not based on what we are worthy to receive, but what lies within his grace to give. The other thing, God doesn't only give wisdom liberally. He says he gives wisdom without reproach, like we just mentioned. We must never feel as though God gets tired of us asking for his wisdom. There is no reproach or reprimand that comes with God's gift of wisdom to his children. Wisdom is a gift which God delights to give. One final note to make about God's wisdom is that true wisdom is always consistent with God's word. True wisdom is always consistent with God's word. There is no wisdom you will receive from God that will run contrary to his word. If you are praying for wisdom, for example, on how to deal with legal documents for your home or your business, and then you are tempted to omit or falsify information, that is not wisdom from God. Later on in the same book, the book of James, chapter 3 and verses 13 through 17, which we will look at in far more detail in weeks to come, Lord willing, speaking about wisdom, James writes this, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. We are commended here by James to ask in faith. Remember, faith is active trust. We ask and then move forward, trusting that God will give the wisdom we need for the occasion. And we don't do this recklessly, but in meek confidence. Asking in faith is not asking and then idly waiting. Asking in faith requires that our faith be manifested in our actions. There is doubt, and there's doubt. If you don't take anything else away from this morning's message, I hope you at least remember this. Not all doubt is created equal. Let me try to explain. Many of us, I think, have read this passage in James and have begun to pray while at the same time trying to convince ourselves that we are not doubting. After all, we want to receive from the Lord that for which we are praying, don't we? And James 1, verses 6 and 7 says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, 
For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. I want us to be aware of a couple of things so we don't misunderstand these verses. The first is this, and I want you to listen very, very carefully. If you're taking notes, just have your pen or pencil ready and, and write this down. This is really important. Very short. Verses 6 and 7 follow verse 5. Yeah, some of you are writing and saying, yeah, you tricked me. Verses 6 and 7 follow verse 5. Seems kind of obvious, doesn't it? So what does verse 5 say? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Context, context, context. Verses 6 and 7 are referring to a very specific prayer, a prayer for wisdom. When we pray for wisdom, we can confidently move forward in faith, knowing that God will grant it to us. On the other hand, if we pray for wisdom and then refuse to trust God to guide us, we have become one who is manifesting doubt rather than faith. We don't actually believe that we've been endowed with wisdom from above. Wisdom and faith both require that we act in obedience. If you have been given wisdom to proceed correctly in obedience to the Lord, and then you do nothing, is it truly wisdom? Or is it even obedience, for that matter? And the same could be said of faith, couldn't it? After all, one chapter later in James chapter 2, verse 17, he writes, Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And secondly, it is one thing to have doubts because we don't know everything we would like to know in our trials. It is another thing to choose to be skeptical because we would rather not proceed in faith. In Mark chapter 9, a desperate father brings his son to Jesus and asks for his healing. The boy had been having seizures due to a demonic spirit possessing him, and this father looks to Jesus for hope. The father, and I'm sure with tears in his eyes, which the scripture even says later on, he implores Jesus saying, but if... You can do anything. Have compassion on us and help us. Jesus responded saying, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Jesus turns the if back on the Father. There is no if about whether or not Jesus can heal. But there is an if about whether we recognize Jesus for who he really is. And here is where the father poured out his heart to Jesus with the doubt he experienced and the belief he so desperately wanted. 
Verse 24 of Mark chapter 9. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Do we condemn this poor father for having doubts? I certainly don't. It was his doubt that he lay at the feet of Jesus as he begged him for healing for his son. And in those doubts, did he receive what he asked? Absolutely. Jesus delivered his son and returned him whole to his father. This is the kind of doubt I think all of us experience, and that's okay. Not one of us is omniscient, seeing the end from the beginning in our times of trial. The only kind of doubt that would have prevented this father from having Jesus heal his son is the kind of doubt that would have prevented him from bringing his son to Jesus in the first place. If this father would have said to himself, ah, it's no use. My son has been suffering like this for years and nothing has helped. What are the chances that this Jesus will be any different? I'm just going home. That's the kind of doubt, skeptical doubt, that is condemned in verse 6 of James 1. Don't agonize in prayer, trying to convince yourself that you must have no doubts so that, God will so that you will receive from God what you ask. Doubts are just part of the human experience. If you must try and convince yourself that you don't doubt, then plainly, you are already doubting. And God can see right through your words to the reality in your heart. You are better off to just cry out to him, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Doubting like this, skeptical doubting, I've called it, creates instability. James says that the one who doubts in this skeptical way is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. One 18th century theologian, his name is Adam Clark, says this of the doubter. He is in a state of continual agitation, driven by the wind and tossed. Now rising by hope, then sinking by despair. James says that the one who doubts like this is like a wave of the sea. In Jewish thought, which James would have been immersed in his whole life, there is a strong tie between the sea and the Gentile nations. The sea, the Gentile nations, were unstable because they did not have scripture. Wherever culture moved, wherever the latest trends were, that's where the people went. This was not to be the case for Israel, the land. The Jews had been entrusted with the word of God, which would never change. It stabilized culture around the unchanging law of God and the unchanging character of the Lord. A thousand years could come and go. God's word and God's character would not be moved. 
implicit in today's passage is that the life of the Christian, too, is to be grounded and anchored in the word of God, full of God's wisdom, if we have ears to hear. A wave of the sea is without rest, and so is the doubter. Have you ever agonized for hours at night because you were trying to figure out in your really smart brain thing how to deal with a trying situation rather than trusting God? I have, and so I'm guessing that you have too. Psalm 4 verse 8 says, I will both lie down in peace and sleep for you alone. O Lord, make me dwell in safety. A wave of the sea is unstable, and so is the doubter. Have you ever gone back and forth on an important decision because you were relying on your own intelligence, your brain thing, rather than trusting God? Psalm 37 verse 5 says, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. A wave of the sea is driven by the winds, and so is the doubter. Are you ever tempted to just go with the winds of culture because that's what everybody else is doing, and it would just be easier? Wouldn't it just be easier to submit to a culture of abortion or homosexuality or euthanasia rather than to fight it? No. Christians are to be mature in Christ. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Ephesians chapter 4.14 There is a quiet confidence that accompanies the Christian that trusts and walks in his wisdom. Skeptical doubt toward God and his faithfulness affects everything. A double-minded man isn't just unstable in the situation in which he doubts. He is unstable, the scripture says, in all his ways. When we fail to pray for God's wisdom, when we fail to believe that he gives us his wisdom, when we fail to act in faith to his guiding, our whole world starts to wobble. Nothing seems obvious anymore. Our doubt seems to overflow from our trials and trickle into other areas of our life that we thought were secure, exposing every crack we thought was stable. For the believer to have peace of mind, he or she must trust God completely, especially in the midst of the most difficult areas of our lives. And isn't James' description of the doubter so accurate? Double-minded. The Greek more easily translates to double-souled, but double-minded is a great translation. Again, the theologian Adam Clark has a wonderful insight here describing the double-minded. The man of two souls, who has one for the earth 
and another for heaven. Who wishes to secure both worlds, he will not give up earth, and he is loath to let heaven go. The man who said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, was not double-minded. He wanted to believe and declared his belief. His faith was a seedling, but it wasn't tinged with double-minded doubt. He was single-minded in seeking the healing of Jesus Christ. In conclusion of these four verses, I want to encourage you to bring your trials and doubts to the throne of grace. Write your prayers down on paper. Ask God for wisdom in each area of trial and trust him to give it. As he guides you, and he will, thank him for his grace and peace and cross your trials off your list. God is faithful. Let's close today's message by reading 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have been so good to us. We so often to forget to thank you for the tremendous blessings you continue to pour out. We forget to thank you when we experience trials. We begin to doubt. Father, I ask that we would have the courage to lay our doubts at the foot of the cross. That we would have the courage to move forward in wisdom and faith. Each one of us in here is facing things in the next while where we need your wisdom. Lord, we're not all that smart. We can't make these decisions well without your spirit to guide us. And so, in desperation, we pray for your wisdom. And we trust that you will give it to us. Give us the courage to move forward. Give us the courage to walk in obedience, to walk in obedient wisdom. Thank you for each person listening to this message today. Thank you that your word is true and unmovable and unshakable. I pray that this nation that we're living in that is going through such turbulent times would look to the truth of your word to stabilize it again. I ask that you would convict the hearts of those in authority, that they would be guided toward the true principles, the true and eternal principles of your word, and that you would give them wisdom. Father, you have been such an anchor of hope for us, and it is in the hope of our Lord Jesus Christ, and in his name we pray. Amen.